in its big picture, we know that God only ever destroys with tears in his eyes. He only ever destroys as a last resort, if you like. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Resilient Christian Podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and thanks again for listening wherever you're listening from. There are a lot of difficult passages in the Bible. Do we choose God or does God choose us? One issue that comes up a lot in conversations, especially with people who might be skeptics or outside the church walls, is how do we make sense of the violence of God in the Old Testament? How do we make sense of it in light of God's character being described throughout the Bible as being merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, as it says in Psalm 86:15. If God is loving, slow to anger, desires all people to come to faith in him, how do we make sense of his commands for war and violence? This Bible difficulty takes focus in several Old Testament passages, especially within the larger book of Joshua and Judges. In Joshua 6:21, it says this, Israel devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Later on in Joshua 8, 26, it says, For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held onto his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. In this passage, God instructs Joshua and his followers to kill dozens of enemy armies. According to this passage, Joshua and his followers put to death men, women, children, and livestock by the edge of the sword. Biblical scholars refer to this process of systematic destruction are laid to waste as harem, which was a Hebrew word. There are two major dilemmas for us in these passages. On one end, if we say that God did not command the Israelites to destroy these Canaanite tribes, then it brings into question the character of God. How could a God who commands us not to murder, murder women and children himself? On the other hand, if we say that God did not actually command the Israelites, it brings into question our view of biblical inspiration and the trustworthiness of the Bible. What are we to do? Today, we're going to hear from two Christian college scholars who are going to give their best interpretation of these difficult passages. And then at the end, I'm going to give my interpretation after taking all this information in and help summarize it for you. Consider this to be like a Christian college class where you're going to sit in and hear some different perspectives. And by the end, I hope that you come out wrestling with these issues with deeper clarity and more trust in God and the Bible. So let's begin first by getting a broader sense of what it means to talk about the violence of God in the Bible. Uh, Make maybe a key distinction. Uh, When we're talking about God and and war, the conquest uh, with Joshua, uh, that's kind of a sub-discussion of a broader topic of the violence of God. So, uh, you know, God commands war uh, in the Old Testament, but these these kind of texts would include, you know, God uh, killing the earth in the flood, uh, commanding Abraham to offer uh, or sacrifice his son Isaac, death of the firstborn in Egypt, you know, the status of women, the practice of slavery, all of these issues of violence uh, in the Bible uh, is kind of the big broader discussion of which the conquest is part. That's Dr. Blair Wilgus, professor of biblical studies at Hope International University. And he centers and focuses his scholarship on the Old Testament and specifically on violence and God. It's probably worth pointing out, anyone that talks about this, everyone, at least to my knowledge, that talks about this will, will, will state right up front, uh, 
God's practice, God's command in the Old Testament is not warrant for believers to do so today. And the Christians are not to use military force to convert others to the gospel. So just get that right out of the way. We're still left with a God in, uh, especially the Old Testament, but in places in the New uh, that uses violence. Um, and how do we how do we wrestle with this? And so uh, if I can give kind of two, again, contrasting pictures, uh, Tremper Longman, uh, who was formerly from Westmont in uh, Santa Barbara, he says there's spiritual continuity between the Testaments. So in the Old Testament, it is God that fights. God fights Israel's enemies. God at times fights Israel itself. Uh, there's the belief that God will fight, uh, will come back and fight when the need arises again. But God did literally engage in Israel's military conflicts. Uh, and then in the New Testament, this is, uh, there's some continuity there, uh, but it's, it's a, a slight discontinuity as well. In the New Testament, Jesus fights spiritual powers and authorities. And Jesus will come back to fight in the final battle. So there's continuity in this image of God as warrior, but discontinuity in how that warfare takes place. Then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, C.S. Cowles talks about a radical discontinuity. Um, he, uh, he says that the Old Testament is Christian scripture, uh, but it's not by itself a Christian message. So he almost decanonizes the Old Testament. Um, he, he contrasts this idea of God as a warrior in the Old Testament with the idea of uh, a loving God that we see in the New Testament uh, and says that the New Testament is radically opposed to that image of God. Um, he uses this Christological hermeneutic, Jesus, uh, God is interpreted by Jesus, and the New Testament picture of Jesus shows us that Israel misunderstood or misinterpreted God. And so we should base our image based on that peaceful, loving example of, uh, of Christ. It's a big spectrum. There's lots of places uh, in between uh, nuances, uh, numerous different uh, types, uh, points of uh, conversation. But that kind of gives us a range of the uh, options that are out there. The summary Dr. Wilgus offered is important to understand. At the heart of this issue is God's very character. Is the God we read about in the Old Testament the same as the New Testament? Dr. Wilgus uses this word continuity. Is God the same in character? Does he have the same continuity from each testament or not? Conservatives on this matter, led by Tremper Longman, believe that the same God we see in the Old Testament is the same God we see in the New Testament in Jesus. C.S. Cowles of Point Loma Nazarene believes that there is not continuity, that the fullness of what we understand God to be is seen in Jesus. And the Jews in the Old Testament must have misunderstood God and his voice. This, of course, can undermine our trust in the Bible, which is why good biblical interpretation is so important. I, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. Um, but when I read um, in Joshua chapter 6, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Um, I remember reading that and thinking, Jesus, is that you? God, is that you? Is that the same God that, that we know and worship, the, the, um, the God that we love? Um, and it is. And this is Dr. Andrew Judd, professor of Old Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Andrew is also an ordained Anglican minister, and he's written several articles and YouTube videos on this very topic for the Gospel Coalition and for his own research. Um, I, th I think there's a... Um... Uh, a few things that are helpful to keep in mind, but my, my overriding principle when reading the Bible as someone who's a Christian who believes the Bible is true, 
I assume the Bible's true, but I don't assume to already know what it says. So going into it with an attitude of, uh, yes, the Bible's true, but let's look carefully at what it says and let's um, go in with, a, um, I guess, a humility and open-mindedness to, to really slow down and, um, and be a, a good traveller to this ancient, um, this ancient context and ancient world. So one of the big issues, um, which we can talk about more if you want, is what does it mean to devote a city to destruction? What's implied by this word? You mentioned harem before. That's the word that's used. So what exactly does that word mean? This word harem means annihilate or destroy or devote to God in Hebrew. And it's at the center of the passages in Joshua. Dr. Blair Wilgus gives a great answer to describe what the word harem means. <clears throat> well, you uh, you already mentioned uh, harem. That's the Hebrew word. Uh, and you uh, offered uh, two translations for it. You used the word annihilate. Uh, and uh, as you read the passage, um, it said dedicated or devoted to the Lord. Um, there's a number of different translations. But uh, when when you read in these battles in the Old Testament, uh, stories where Israel completely destroys or devotes to God. Uh, those are different translations of harem. Uh, and that's a very difficult uh, word to translate, uh, and it's a, a very big concept to describe. Uh, so let me uh, try and kind of summarize that. This, this harem is the consecration of something or some, uh, someone uh, as an offering uh, f- uh, to God. So in war, um, if we divide uh, the spoils of war into three categories, uh, so the the riches, if they you know if they conquer and, and take over a, uh, a temple or a palace, you know there's gold, silver, bronze. Those those things are devoted to God by being picked up and placed in Israel's uh, tabernacle or temple. Um, if they encounter people, they are completely killed. They're they're uh, Killed, burnt, city, uh, uh, non, non-living objects, buildings are destroyed. Uh, these things are not for human use. So uh, treasures are, are for God's use. Uh, humans can't take, uh, Israel can't take the humans as slaves or as wives, and the buildings aren't to be lived in. Everything is completely devoted, destroyed, given up to God. So if the word harem had this idea of destruction and consecration, why would God ask Israel to go and annihilate and destroy these Canaanites that lived in Jericho and Ai. Dr. Blair Wilgus gives his interpretation on this issue, and he leans more towards the discontinuity idea. And when you hear him talk about it, what he is basically saying is that he thinks that Israel was using cultural language around war to make sense of God's commands. Dr. Wilgus explains in detail. Well, let me, uh, uh, you know, if I'm laying my t- cards on the table, I would fall more into Cal's category of a, a discontinuity. Um, but I think that it's a little bit more complex than that. So um, if we're talking about the conquest, uh, there's actually two versions of the conquest in Joshua. In chapters 1 through 12, Joshua and Israel took the entire land. They took everything. Chapter 11 is very clear. This happened in Joshua's life. God gave them everything. They didn't make peace with anyone. They owned the land. And then in the second half of the book, chapter 13 to 24, there's a different version of the conquest. It took a long time. It's not finished at the end of Joshua's life. His final speech recognizes that not everyone was driven out. The entire book of Judges is predicated on the fact that Israel hadn't conquered the land. So we've got half of the book that said they had, half the book that says they haven't. Uh, And Judges is kind of the the follow-up to this long conquest. 
And I think that the archaeological record kind of fits with that second version of Joshua. There's very little widespread destruction, uh, and this indicates that Israel dispossessed. They pushed out uh, the indigenous people rather than completely destroying them. Uh, so they took over the promised land, but there's a difference between what we think of as a historical account and what Israel talks about in what we call their historical books, which are probably more accurately described as using historical events for a moral purpose. So if we draw this together, you know, talking about the harem and what we can see uh, in, the, in the actual text of jo uh, Joshua and Judges uh, in the archaeological ref uh, record, um, I think we can say that in addition, Israel never carried out the harem. Now, they talked as if it was in certain texts, but, but the reality is they never actually did it. Uh, and this was a cultural term. So I think we can say, in addition to them never actually doing it, I think the story that God told them to do it was more a cultural artifact than an account that, uh, that it actually happened. So essentially, I would say that God didn't tell them to kill all the Canaanites. This is the way that they talked about going to war. We go to the war and every, uh, you know, we have Christians on both sides of the, uh, uh, both sides of the army on uh, different, different armies. They're both praying to God. Everyone in the ancient Near East talked to their God, believed their God was fighting for them. And this idea of harem was a cultural artifact. Uh, I think that we can say God didn't kill them. That's, that was a cultural way of talking about going to war. Um, and they didn't do it. Uh, as well. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. So just to kind of summarize even what you're saying for our listeners and what I've understood is we know that even though God called for harem, Israelites didn't do it because we still have people living in the promised land who were from Canaan and they intermarried and we see that happening all through Joshua and Judges. Is that what I'm hearing you say? I would even say that God did not call for harem. That, that they're going into the land that God told them to take and they're going in, and so everyone talks about battle using this term. But God did not actually say, kill everyone. You might be wondering, what does Dr. Wilgus mean, God did not tell Joshua to destroy everyone? What he means by this is that the author of Joshua, years after the event, when they wrote the history of the events in Joshua, attributed to God these instructions to destroy everyone because it was what other cultures did in that day to describe military victories in their own histories. Dr. Wilgus argues that God didn't literally say, go and destroy everyone. It was later attributed to him because that was how people made sense of war and talked about war in their histories up to that point. So in summary, Dr. Wilgus believes that the correct interpretation is that Joshua, when he went up to write the history of the book about taking the promised land, attributed to God hyperbolic language that exaggerated his command to conquer the promised land. In essence, what Dr. Wilgus and this interpretation is suggesting is that Joshua and the authors of Joshua misunderstood what God said and attributed to him cultural ideas to make sense of their conquest. It should be noted that this is just one of four major ways to interpret the violence in Joshua. Dr. Andrew Judd disagrees with this interpretation. However, a second way to interpret the violence in Joshua is to say that God did speak those things to Joshua, but he was using hyperbolic exaggerations. So instead of rejecting that God would tell Joshua to destroy Jericho and Ai, we reinterpret what God meant when he told Joshua to destroy every man, woman, and child in the cities. This is the perspective of the creators of the Bible Project in their YouTube video, 
on the book of Joshua. Here's a clip from that YouTube video summarizing this view. So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here. Dr. Andrew Judd chimes in on this, and he gives a little bit more information about the issue of genre and how to interpret historical accounts in the Bible. But there are a whole bunch of things that we do need to be careful about when we read an ancient text, which I think are legitimate. So reinterpreting, I think, is um, totally legitimate. And the other thing we need to ask is, what genre are we reading? Um, Because I, I read in the sports section... Um, I read people talking about, like, um, you know, we decimated the other side. Um, I could use Australian football teams, but they wouldn't mean anything to you. But, you know, if I said, um, you know, sort of uh, Richmond decimated Collingwood, right, Um, I don't literally mean that they lined up the Collingwood players and killed kind of one in ten of them. It's a figure of speech which is appropriate for the genre of uh, sort of sports writing. Well, what we have in Joshua is a war report, kind of like sports writing, but for war. Um, And it's not, we have to be careful, we kind of pay attention to that genre and make sure we're not assuming things. Um, And you see that particularly, um, there's some little puzzling bits in the text. So for instance, we hear that the city of Hebron is destroyed, like completely, utterly decimated, no living thing left. And then we read a few chapters later that it has to be sort of um, subdued again, like five chapters later or something. And you're like, well, hang on, did they sort of like completely restart the city from scratch? Who were these people? Similarly, you've got all these um, commands to wipe out every living thing and then a warning not to intermarry with that city. Now, who are they intermarrying with if they've just destroyed every living thing? So that's a clue that the genre of the text is maybe not what we're used to. So we need to read it as, as truth, as scripture, but also pay attention to the type of literature that it is and the figures of speech, the hyperbole, the, um, yeah, what the text is doing. So we don't misunderstand, um, what it's actually saying. Cause remember we believe the Bible's true. We assume that, but we don't assume that we know what it says before we read it carefully. So there's some of the reinterpreting kind of, um, moves that we can make to, to clarify the extent of the violence. So how do we make sense of these violent descriptions in the Old Testament? Dr. Judd gives one of his interpretations for these passages. Probably what they're talking about is a decisive military victory. So this is ancient speak for, yeah, we won that that battle. And and when you look at the text closely, that's sort of what um, the impression that you get because they don't kill everything in the promised land. We know that because they're continually struggling in future, you know, in the book of Joshua, um, sorry, in the book of Judges, which follows, they're, they're struggling not to be drawn in by the Canaanite practices. And you're like, well, hang on, if they destroyed every living thing back in the book of Joshua, why is this a continuing problem? Why do they need to continually subdue the land and continually resist the, the um, influence of the land? So reading carefully is really helpful. But Dr. Judd isn't done there. Although he agrees that we have to reinterpret the passages under the cultural understanding of that day, 
There are also a few other factors to make sense of these passages with utter violence. And one of them has to do with giving God the right to take life and to give it. God is God. He can do what he wants. So God's, God's, right to, God's right to judge the world is, is sort of the, the third thing. And in a sense, this is just true. I mean, if you believe God is real, if you take the text at face value, and this is God saying these seven nations, because remember the violence is directed towards just these seven nations who are named in the text. It's not like they can go and kill whoever they want. It's uh, People often exaggerate, I think, actually what Joshua says. It doesn't say that the Israelites are allowed to um, kill whoever they want and just take anything they want. Actually, it's it's these it's this particular um, judgment handed out on on these people. Um, well, we just bite the bull and say, well, God is the judge of the world. He's chosen to use the nation uh, of Israel to carry out that judgment. In a sense, we were all on borrowed time anyway since Genesis three, when um, you know God said, "Don't eat from the fruit, or you'll die." We ate from the fruit. It's, we're really on borrowed time since then. It's it's kind of God's mercy that anyone's left, and, and He gets to decide um, how um, how long we live, and He owns the land. So it's not that He's taking the land from the Canaanites and giving it to the Israelites. It's His land all along. He's just saying who can live there, and um, I mean that's that's true, right? God God is the judge of the world. For me, that doesn't quite um, go all the way to solving it because. Um, on the one hand, yeah, God is the judge of the world, but we also know that he's full of mercy and compassion, and we know that his plan has always been to redeem the whole world, right, to include Jews and Gentiles in his new humanity. So it sort of doesn't answer the question of, well, why are you suddenly going all like zero tolerance on the Canaanites, but the Israelites are like getting away with all sorts of stuff because the Israelites, they're not, they're not perfect, right? We, we read in the book of um, Joshua and particularly Judges that they're guilty of many of the same crimes as the Canaanites. So why this sort of double standard or God, what are you doing? Like, I, I know it's your right to do that, but I, I just don't understand what you're doing. So that's sort of the third approach. Um, I think it's part of the answer. I think um, it is, it's true. Although this perspective that God can take life and give it and he has the right to it, is part of the answer to interpret the violence in the Old Testament. Dr. Judd says there's actually a more thorough way of doing that, which he calls recontextualizing the story in light of the whole history of the Old Testament. He explains what he means. Um, The fourth one um, is to really just take a a, a step backwards and recontextualize the violence in light of the, the bigger story. So why is it so important that the Israelites don't kind of intermingle, intermarry, pick up the customs of the Canaanites in the land. And it really goes back to his, his big picture um, uh, plans, which go back to Abraham, to reverse the, the, the problem of sin in the world. So way back in the beginning, uh, humanity disbelieved, disrespected, disobeyed God. It all went downhill. We started killing each other. Uh, It was an absolute mess. And at that point, God could have, and some might say should have, just cut off the, you know, cut off our oxygen and said, look, thanks, humanity. It's been great, but I'm going to start again. Maybe I'll put the dolphins in charge this time, see what happens, right? But he doesn't do that. He he decides to work through the mess of human sin 
and use imperfect people in imperfect situations and really get his hands dirty in history to try to not let our sin have the final say over the world. And that starts with Abraham, but it's never just Abraham and his descendants. The vision is always that through him, the whole world would be blessed. Now, if you think about it like a bit of a pilot light or a pilot project um, where you know he's going to kind of create this, this um, redeemed humanity, but they're going to draw the rest of the world back. They can't do that if they fall into sin as well. So at this point in the story, if Israel starts behaving like Canaanites, if they intermarry with Canaanites, if they pick up the child sacrifice of Canaanites, the idolatry, the polytheism, all those things, then the world is stuffed, right? At that point, the the whole rescue plan will go off the rails. And so it's vitally important that uh, these runaway slaves from Egypt, the, the Israelites, are able to resist falling in with the um, the idolatry, the false worship of, of Canaan. And to protect them from that, what they're meant to do is the opposite of intermarrying, the opposite of joining in their um, anti-God religion, uh, which is to destroy the, uh, if you like, the infrastructure of idolatry, destroy the, the, um, the, 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 the false religion and not intermarry with them. And that's why they have to carry out this harem at this point to, to protect the pilot project and to make sure they don't fall into sin. And we know that God was sort of right to be worried about that because in the end, they don't carry out the harem. That's the, the, the kind of the twist in the story is they leave a lot of it undone and they do intermarry with the Canaanites and they do pick up their child sacrifice ways. And that's the whole sorry story of Israel from that point on they do go downhill the book of uh, joshua is followed by judges where it's this downhill spiral as israel becomes basically indistinguishable from the canaanites and it just ends in an absolute train wreck so how do we make sense of the violence we see in the bible especially in the book of joshua there seems to me to be some clarity from this discussion first god's character is bent on good and is full of love and compassion I think God's core character is loving, and it's his desire that no one would suffer and die. Even in the Old Testament, God's heart is for all people, and he hopes Israel will be an instrument of light to the nations. However, the creator God in the Bible is just. This is an extension of his holiness. God wants to make the world right again. And the Canaanite tribes were guilty of child sacrifice and other human atrocities that was an extension of their worship of false gods. Did God really tell Joshua to kill all women and children as it sounds like in Joshua 6.21? My personal view is that I think he did, but there are two caveats to this. First, I think God's heart breaks whenever he has to pour out his wrath. I think God's heart broke over these decisions. According to William Lane Craig, one of the greatest Christian apologists in our day, he says that in Genesis 15.13-16, God tells Abraham that one of the tribes of the Canaanites hasn't done enough wrong to incite his justice. God says that their sins will befall on them for four generations. William Lane Craig writes in his blog post in 2007 about this subject, God stays his judgment of the Canaanite clans 400 years because their wickedness had not reached the point of intolerability. 
This is the long-suffering God we know in the Hebrew Scriptures. So yes, uh, I think God did command Joshua to destroy the Canaanites because their sin and false worship had caused God to lose his patience. But I also believe that when God commanded Joshua, that God might have been using some sort of hyperbole and was communicating to Joshua that they must have a decisive military defeat, so much so that the Canaanite cultures would no longer have any influence in the land. Now this does leave open some messy issues in the Old Testament, but I do find the argument of genre convincing enough to consider that God was using some extreme language or hyperbole. But I could be wrong, and I'm be open to changing my opinion. Finally, God's character from the Old Testament is consistent throughout the whole Bible. It's not correct to say that the God in the Old is angry and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament is loving and good. What about the most violent act in the whole Bible, which is Jesus suffering on the cross? Isn't the Son of God facing the full wrath of God for our sin the greatest demonstration of God's justice? To wrap this episode up, I've asked both scholars to give a hopeful conclusion to their interpretation of these tough passages. So if we focus too much on a certain issue or these kind of negative texts, that's all we see, uh, and that can be kind of overwhelming uh, and put a negative taste in our mouth about the Bible. But there's much more to it uh, than that. Yeah. Um, I'm an Old Testament professor, so I was thinking about this uh, through uh, the portion of the Bible that I tend to read. Um, how do, um, I think Genesis 12, God's promise to uh, Abram, the, that first blessing um, I will bless you, and through you, all, uh, all nations on earth will be blessed. Uh, this this blessing, this choice of Abram uh, and Abraham and his family, is for the purpose of blessing everyone. Mm-hmm. John Golnigay says that this shows that God is primarily about blessing, not primarily about violence and cursing. I think that's a really helpful distinction. Uh, so I think that uh, when Israel thought about uh, the their, the ideal world, it was a world of peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that's really helpful because we can look at the Old Testament and think, okay, this is a lot of violent judgment, uh, but the reality was they pictured and longed for peace. And that's that'll preach. In fact, I, I preached a little bit on Shalom this past weekend at our church. And just that one of the major themes of the Bible could be summarized as Shalom, as, as God wanting to bring peace between us and God, us and each other, and us and within ourselves. Sure. And I think what you're describing is is that idea of shalom and God really longs for for peace that's not about violence or war. Um, that is such a beautiful picture of the heart of God. The, the violence is um, very focused. It's not this sort of indiscriminate, bloodthirsty God like we read about in some other ancient um, uh, sort of texts. Um, it's not like the Assyrian. So the Assyrian God, he just loves violence, just makes him happy to see people die. Like that's how you bring glory to your God is just violence, war. Um, that's, not the, that's not what's going on here. And so when we, we see it in its big picture, we know that God only ever destroys with tears in his eyes. He only ever destroys as a last resort, if you like. Um, and he, ultimately his goal is for the Canaanites to be included back in his plans for all humanity. And I'm, I'm, I mean, in this story, I'm pretty much on the Canaanite side of the equation, right? I'm not ethnically Jewish. And so the fact that I'm here talking about this as a Christian is sort of a testament to that long-term plan. Um, I think we're often, when we read ourselves into the story, a lot of us think of ourselves as the Israelites in this story, but actually we're, we're the Canaanites. And 
ultimately his God's goal is what we see in Jesus. But this, I guess, getting his hands dirty in history is, yeah, it's part of that story and, and consistent with what we see uh, revealed in Jesus. Uh, in your YouTube video about this very topic, you uh, had this phrase about um, about the mysteries in the scriptures and you know believing that all of the Bible is true, reliable, without error, inspired by God, and at the same time holding intention that there are mysteries in the scriptures. And you had this phrase, you said, not being okay with everything we read or something like that. It's, it's okay to not be okay with everything that we, we might read. Can you articulate kind of what, what, what do you mean by that and, and how... How do we kind of live in tension when there's mysteries in scripture that we're not totally like, um, you know, uh, like we not totally understand? Yeah, great question. Okay, so I'll live with you. I reckon if I wrote the Bible, we wouldn't have any of these issues. All right? Or at least, or at least I wouldn't have any of these issues. You might have issues with the Bible I wrote, but it would be, it would be completely, it would tell me exactly what I want to hear. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, the Bible that we have was not from me. It's not the one that I've written. It's um, it's from God. And so God sometimes startles me. Um, I read things in the Bible and I don't understand them. And that's not to say that the Bible is unclear. We know that we get all we need for salvation from, from the scriptures. But that doesn't mean that every bit of it is instantly like, oh, yeah, I know that. And I think when we go back and read the Bible, sometimes we can be startled. And that's okay. Like I, I think um, I say to my students at Ridley a lot because after the we're in week two of semester now and we're going through Genesis and I can see for some of them that we're like, we've broken the Bible a little bit because we've raised all these issues and questions and I just want to say, like, that's that's okay. It's okay to read something and go, wait, really? It, the question is, like, for, for people of faith, what you do with that feeling. Do you take that to God and say, hey, God, I know you, and this doesn't seem like you. Can you help me understand what's going on here? I, I, I know, I mean, I've seen Jesus on the cross, so I know that you're not a bad person, but I just don't understand how this bit fits in. And taking that to God and not feeling like I need to make that feeling go away can actually be a bit of a, um, uh, it, it can help us to grow. It can lead to asking good questions. And it's also a sign that we're really reading the Bible, not just reading what we think the Bible should say. Um, because, you know, a surefire way of making all these problems go away is by just not opening the book of Joshua. The truth has nothing to fear, right? Like, so... God is, God is, he's legit. Okay. And so we, we, there's no question we can ask him that will offend him or that will put him off. In fact, the best thing for our relationship with him is for us to bring this stuff to him and, and wrestle in prayer and in study to try to understand this God that we know is good. And so we come back around Psalm 103 verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The God of the Bible is a God who loves, who is good. And we have to wrestle with the scriptures and these difficult passages. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, 
might become rich. Paul is not talking about our own wealth here, our own personal finances when he says that we are rich in Christ. What he means is, is because Jesus left heaven and experienced poverty, the poverty of being born in human flesh, the poverty of not having a home, the poverty of experiencing all of our sin, as Isaiah 53 says, the poverty of experiencing the wrath of God on the cross. You and I now are rich, not rich in finances, but rich in his righteousness, rich in forgiveness, rich in his Holy Spirit, and rich in the love of God. I want to thank both of these professors, Dr. Andrew Judd and Dr. Blair Wilgus, for their time and their effort and their scholarship. Their insights to this issue were really helpful. And thanks to Friends Worship for the use of their song, One with the Spirit, at the opening of the podcast episode. And I hope that this deep dive into a difficult topic has helped you to be more resilient in your faith, a resilient disciple, a resilient Christian. We say here that we want to clear the clutter and the noise for deeper discipleship. And we hope and pray that this episode has cleared some of the clutter to some of the difficulty of the violence in the Bible. God bless you.